After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it in next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. This time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. That is why, still today, the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us, because his hand is strongly against us and our God Dagon. So they called all the Philistine rulers together and asked, What should we do with the ark of, the Israel, of Israel's God? The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they were overjoyed to see it. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there near a large rock. The people of the city chopped up the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites removed the ark of the Lord and along with the box containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. That day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. When the five Philistine rulers observed this, they returned to Ekron that same day. God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should the ark go from here? They sent messengers to the residents of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and get it. So the people of Kiriath-Jerim came for the ark of the Lord and took it to Abinadab's house on the hill. They consecrated his son Eleazar to take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Hellas Church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures. So if you uh, can grab your Bibles, no matter where you are located right now as you're tuning in and worshiping with us this morning, uh, grab your Bibles, turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. As you're finding your way there, let me ask you a question. What, what would cause you to have a visceral reaction? What would cause you to have a visceral reaction? One of those gut responses that tend to be somewhat negative, perhaps a sickening feeling over something? What would cause you to have a visceral reaction? I asked this question of some of our elders, and they provided me with some answers. And uh, I'm not going to share their names with you because I don't want to tempt you to try to solicit a visceral action reaction from them when you, when you uh, next see them. And so I'm not going to tell you that Jason uh, mentioned cats. And I'm not going to tell you that Jason also mentioned country music and giving him a visceral reaction. I'm not going to tell you that he also doesn't like something called uh, V-lookups. Uh, techies apparently know what that is. I don't. But V-lookups is something that gives him a visceral reaction. 
I'm not going to tell you that Mark uh, mentioned uh, he responds that way when he sees someone taking a delicate dessert that is supposed to be savored and enjoyed and just eats it too quickly. And I'm not going to tell you that Mark also doesn't takes kind of the same approach when someone has a nice, uh, exquisite cup of coffee and they just gulp it down too, too swiftly. I'm not, not going to tell you that Mark would respond viscerally to that. George uh, gave an answer that kind of hit close to my heart when he mentioned that he kind of responds with a visceral reaction when he sees someone uh, taking barbecue uh, right out of the smoker. It's a terrible idea. You don't want to take a brisket or a pork shoulder right off the smoker and just start carving it up. You, you have to let it rest. You have to let it sit. Let the juices kind of uh, even themselves out in the meat. Don't waste that work by cutting into it too quickly. Now, one of the things that Pastor Jeff said up in Edmonds, he mentioned that he, he kind of responds that way to belly laughing and belly rolling babies when they're laughing so hard. It kind of gives him that reaction. So if your baby has that kind of personality, you might want to keep them, him or her away from Jeff. Now, one of the things that can tend to give me, and, and I don't think I'm alone in this, uh, kind of a visceral reaction is when we take something that is uncommon or rare or special and we treat it as though it's not. And so I would have a visceral reaction if you were to take a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card and, and start using it as a bookmark. That's, that's not going to sit well with me as you take that uncommon object and you treat it in a common way. Or if you were to take a collector's edition of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy and and rather than keeping them on your shelf far from little ones' hands, and you kind of take it down off the shelf and you begin to use those beautiful books uh, as a coaster. Uh, I walk into your home and I see that a visceral reaction is going to happen if I, if I kind of see uh, something that is uncommon being treated as though it is common. Now, I want you to think about that question. What causes you to have a visceral reaction? And the reason why I ask it at this point is because the passage before us this morning is the type of passage that if we, at first glance, it may cause readers to have a visceral reaction. There's a lot of death and a lot of suffering and a lot of struggle that is unfolding in the passage before us. It's one of many passages in the Bible that may cause readers to have a visceral reaction, but my question is for you and for me to think about why that is. What is the cause of a visceral reaction when we read passages like this? Is it, the, is it a response we are giving to God's actions, or is it a response we are giving to human actions? Now, how we answer that question may signify whether or not we hold a high view of God or a low view of God. How we answer that question may indicate, it may signify whether our understanding of reality is God-centered or human-centered. What is the cause of our vis visceral reactions to passages such as this where God's judgment is being poured out on People And we begin to consider that reality, even in our own lives, what is our response? Are we reacting against God's actions or are we considering human actions and that being the, the cause of it? 
So I want us to have that in mind as we walk through this story today, as we consider uh, three aspects of, of who God is as it relates to how he interacts with us and how he intends to be in our lives and in the universe, quite frankly. This passage puts before us the supremacy of God. It calls our attention, yes, to the severity of God, and it reminds us of the sacredness of God. Let's first think about the the supremacy of God. The passage picks up where last week's text ended, where the Philistines defeated the people of Israel in battle. And the reason why Israel was handed over to the Philistines in that moment was because God was disciplining them for their disobedience. He was disciplining them for their refusal to honor him as God and to pay attention to his word. And so the Lord hands Israel over to the Philistines, and the Philistines defeat them in battle. After that, a terrible thing happens where the Philistines take the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, which housed the tablets of stone that Moses brought down from Sinai, the Ten Commandments. It it housed a, a sampling of the manna that manna from heaven that the Lord provided his people with as they wandered through the wilderness. It housed within it Aaron's staff, this this holy, sacred object that represented God's glory to God's people. The Philistines took that. They took it from Shiloh. They brought it back to their territory. And then we're told right in verse 1, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod brought it into the temple of Dagon and placed it next to his statue. So notice that word next. If you like to mark and circle in your Bibles, I would really circle that word next because that's kind of the key to the problem that's that's happening here. That they take the ark of God, that which represented God's relationship with his people, and they take it and they put it next to Dagon in his house, in his temple. Now, Dagon was a was an idol, it was a false god that was commonly worshipped by Semitic peoples in antiquity. It wasn't a god that originated with the Philistines. In fact, the Philistines were not a Semitic people. They migrated to this region by crossing the Aegean Sea. And and as they did so, they would conquer peoples and establish themselves in that part of the world. And and at some point in time, they probably defeated those who worshipped Dagon and took him and kind of claimed him as as one of their many gods. And so they had this temple, this house dedicated to Dagon, and it was located most likely in in a pantheon of other gods and other idols that the Philistines would, would show, would pay homage to as they would develop their worship practices and all these types of things. And they take the Ark of the Covenant of God and they place it in Dagon's house. They put it next to Dagon. And we have this incredibly illustrative picture of what goes on in our hearts far too often. Far too often, we take the Lord and we just put him next to all the other idols, all the other things that we are looking to for life and for happiness and for joy. And we just take the Lord and we put him next to those things in our own personal pantheons. And so I would encourage you to examine yourself today and ask yourself the question, is the Lord just another part of my personal pantheon? Is he just one God of many gods that I am looking to for life and to happiness in this world? What tends to happen in our hearts is that we look to the Lord for heaven, but then we look to other idols for happiness. 
We look to the Lord for eternity, for what's going to happen to us after we leave this world or we die in this world. But we look to all sorts of other things for our happiness. And we take the Lord and we put him right next to other things. And, and we look to other things to provide us with satisfaction and contentment and pleasure. How our heart responds in that moment. Do we lose our joy? Do we lose our contentment when our bank account isn't as full as it once was? Do we lose our joy? Do we lose our contentment when a relationship with another person breaks down? Do, do we lose our contentment, lose our joy? Do we lose our lives when a pandemic causes everything to come to a halt and we can't travel as much as we once did? Are, are we losing ourselves in the face of those that are being knocked over in our lives? Still want to consider whether or not we just take the Lord and place him next to other things as though he is equal. Is the Lord a spoke in the will of your life or is he the hub? Is he just a spoke, take him or leave him? You can do without a couple of spokes in the wheel. It's still going to roll, but you can't do without the hub. You can't do without, without that which holds everything together. And that's who the Lord intends to be in our lives. Not a spoke, but the hub. And if we treat him as anything other than the hub of our lives, we are not honoring his supremacy because the Lord does not belong next to anything. He belongs above everything. And so just to ask your heart some questions, does your ca- if you say that the Lord is the hub of your life, if he's the center point of your life, if he is your God, Does your calendar agree with that? If you say the Lord is the hub, the Lord is the center, does your checkbook agree with that? After all, Jesus would say that where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be. Do we treasure the Lord or do we treasure other things? If you say that the Lord is the hub and not just a spoke, Does what happens in your life behind closed doors when no one else is watching, do those things agree with that declaration? You see, here we have a picture of the sovereignty, supremacy of God, that he doesn't belong next to anything. He must reign above everything. That's what it means for him to be the Lord. After all, the Lord entertains no rivals God entertains no rivals as you see what goes down in Dagon's house. In verse 3, it says, When the people of Ashdod got up the next, early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This idol was tipped over, and now it is before God in this posture of submission and surrender. And then, so the people come in and they see this happen to their, to their little G God, to their idol, and so they pick up Dagon, and they prop him back up, but then the next day, the same thing happens, only worse. Because the next day, they come in, and notice what goes down. It says in verse 4, this time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. And you have this moment where Dagon suffers a type of military execution. The Lord is ruining Dagon because God respects no rivals. He respects no rivals. He intends to ruin them. Now, I don't know how that sits with you to consider the Lord doing this type of thing and even acknowledging that the Lord will do these types of things to the idols in our lives as well. That the Lord respects no rivals. He will ruin them in our lives. And and I want you to know 
that if and when the Lord begins to topple your idols and he begins to expose them as frail and fragile and he begins to destroy them as inadequate, understand that that in and of itself is an act of mercy. That when the Lord topples our idols, when he removes them from our lives by exposing them for the frauds that they are, that is an act of mercy. You see, the Lord knows that our worship is formative. That as human beings, we inevitably become like that which we are worshiping. And the only image the Lord wants to conform in our lives is that of Christ. And any other thing that is trying to conform to or calls us to conform to in our life, he wants to expose and to, and to ruin. I'll give you an example in Psalm 115. In Psalm 115, you have this incredible poetic description of this reality. Psalm 115, beginning in verse 4. The psalmist says, Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them are just like them and all who are trusting in them. In other words, he's saying, look, Idols are lifeless. And if you worship an idol, if you seek to draw life from that which is wrapped up in creation, that is a part of the created order, you will become lifeless too. For there is only one who transcends creation. There is only one who is eternal. There is only one who will not break down or topple over. There is only one who will remain standing when all is said and done, and that is the Lord. And so we love the fact that God respects no rivals. It's an act of mercy in our lives because he's keeping us from wasting our lives and wasting our worship when he exposes them and when he begins to ruin them. Ralph Waldo Emerson never said, perhaps never said anything truer than when he said, what we are worshiping, we're becoming. What we are worshiping, we're becoming. And I'll give you two examples from that that kind of contrast with two historical figures that you're most likely familiar with. One is Charles Darwin, uh, evolutionary, the founder of evolutionary theory and scientist and the scientific movement. And then the other is Jonathan Edwards, perhaps America's greatest philosopher and theologian. I want you to listen to their stories. Charles Darwin once wrote in his autobiography, my chief enjoyment and sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. And from this work, this is what he added. He says, I'm never idle, as it is the only thing which makes life endurable to me. So the question is, what effect does that have of devoting himself to scientific work have in his life? And this is what he said, up to the age of 30, poetry gave me great pleasure, and I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now, for many years, I... I found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. This loss is a loss of happiness. I became a withered leaf for every subject except science. And he would later say that he saw this to be a great evil. In other words, his life shrunk. His life got incredibly, incredibly narrow. He said, this 
This devotion has turned me into a withering leaf. Now listen to Jonathan Edwards' story by contrast. When Jonathan Edwards was 19 years old, he wrote, I am resolved to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him and consecrate, that is to devote myself wholly to him. And later in life, he reflected on how this object of worship affected his his soul over the years. And this is what he said. He said, this devotion brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to my soul. In other words, it made my soul like a field or a garden. So you have two gifted men, and one of them became a withered leaf, and the other became a luscious garden. That's the difference between viewing the Lord as a hub or spoke. That's what it means for the Lord to be God in your life as he turns us into luscious gardens and protects us from withering like leaves, which is the result of idolatry. So you keep on reading in the story. You have this moment. Notice that after after Dagon fell down that first time, that the people of the, the Philistine people had to come in the next morning and then prop him back up. That they had to literally pick their idol up and set him back on his throne. And this again stands in contrast with the Lord because not only does the supremacy of God mean that God entertains, he respects no rivals, and not, but it also means that God needs no support. That the Lord is never in need of you and I doing something for him that he cannot do for himself. This is what this narrative should really hammer home. I mean, he's in foreign territory. You would think he's held captive by the Philistines, that he needs the people of Israel to come and rescue him. But you're going to find, as the narrative unfolds, that the Lord needs no rescue. He's going to get back to where he wants to be without anybody's assistance. And we begin to see something about the supremacy of God, that he needs no support. This was affirmed in the New Testament, Acts chapter 17, verse 25, where the Apostle Paul is preaching to a group of people who want to just add the Lord to to the pantheon of their religious expression and just view him as a part of everything else. And, And Paul stands up and he says, no, he's not a part of what's going on. He's the point of everything that's happening. And listen to what they say or what he says in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. You and I need the Lord. The Lord doesn't necessarily need us. God is not some cosmic codependent whose needs, who needs things that he from us that he cannot have in and of himself for himself. Keep in mind that our God is triune. Our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means even when he created you and I, he did not create us because he was somehow lonely. He was perfectly sufficient in and of himself with the company he has and that he shares in the Godhead. So when he created you and me, he did not create us because he needed us. He created us because he wants us, because he's a loving God who explodes in life, and he explodes with love, and he explodes with passion for human beings created in his image. So it's not that he needs us, but he 
wants us. That's an incredible thing to realize when we consider the supremacy of God. So things start to unfold in the story. They begin to unfold in the narrative. And in verse 6, things start getting going bad for the, for the Philistine people. In verse 6, it says, The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. And this is one of three references to the Lord's hand being heavy or to the Lord's hand being oppressive of the people in this moment. And, and we begin to see something of the severity of God, the severity of the Lord as he's judging the people, the, the Philistine people. In verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy upon them, and this is what he did. It says that he, God, terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. Now, the language of that text suggests that the tumors here are probably related to some type of swollen lymph nodes that, that can really protrude from the body and really look tough, and, and uh, it just pronounces suffering. It's very similar to what went on with the bubonic plague. Uh, that's often precipitated by rats and rodents. And then later on, you're going to find references to mice and to rats. And it's possible that what's going on among the Philistines is related to some type of bubonic plague, some rodent-borne disease. But more important than just kind of that explanation, if we're to consider Deuteronomy 28, 27, we're going to find that this is the type of malady that the Lord said would, would arise when people violate his covenant expectations. When people dishonor him or disrespect him or do not look to him or listen to him. And so Deuteronomy 28, 27, it said, the Lord says, The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt, tumors, there it is, a festering rash and scabies from which you cannot be cured. This is an expression of the severity of God's judgment. God's judgment is severe and it gets so bad that the people of Philistia, the Ashdod, the Philistine people did not want the Ark of of the covenant anymore. They wanted to get rid of it. And so they moved the, the Ark of the Covenant from Ashdod to Gath and hoping, hoping that that would help. It didn't help. Things got worse. Then they move it from Gath to a place called Ekron. And, and the severity of God just intensifies every time it is moved. Notice verse 11. The Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers together and they said, send the Ark of Israel's, the Ark of Israel's God away. Let it return to its place so it won't kill us or our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So, the Philistines defeated the people of Israel and captured the ark. You would you may be tempted to think, okay, the Lord's no longer for Israel. He must now be for the Philistines. But what we're seeing and how the severity of God that's manifesting amongst the Philistine people is that Israel's loss wasn't necessarily the Philistines' gain. And the reason why that's important, because when it comes to the severity of God, when it comes to divine judgment, understand that the Lord takes no sides. That God takes no signs. He's not wearing a jersey. He's not wearing an Israelite jersey in one moment and then trading over to the Philistines and putting on their jersey because he doesn't take sides. 
in today's Super Bowl. He's not picking between the Chiefs and the Buccaneers. He's, he's not necessarily grieving the sad ending to the Seahawks season either because he has no team that he's rooting for. He has no, he takes no sides. This is illustrated when you consider how Eli in chapter 5, how Eli in chapter 4, how he fell over dead and broke his neck. It's a very similar outcome to his story that as what happened to Dagon in his household. Why is that? Well, it's because both of them were subject to judgment. Both of them experienced the severity of God. One was a Jewish leader. The other was a, was a pagan idol. And yet the Lord brought the same outcome to both. Why? Because God takes no sides. God takes no sides. And this is important for you and I to consider when we look at our society today and how just divided everything is. I don't know if we've ever been in a situation that's as divided as we are now on a socio-political, on the socio-economic political plane. And we need to consider this reality about who God is, that God takes no side. You know, years before this moment, there was a guy named Joshua, and he learned this lesson in a dramatic way. Joshua was leading God's pe uh, the people of Israel after Moses died, and he's bringing them into the promised land, and they're going to conquer it, and they, they show up at a place called Jericho. And then Joshua has this crazy experience with the commander of the Lord's army, who we come to find is, is Christ. And listen to what he says. In Joshua chapter 5, it says, When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Whose side are you on? Are you on our side? Or are you on their side? That was his question. And the response he got, neither. The response from this mysterious man standing in front of him was neither. I have, I have now come as the commander of the Lord's army. And he heard that sobering word, I'm not on your side, I'm not on their side, I'm on God's side. Because the Lord takes no sides. And so when you consider the loyalty of your life, and you try to assess the loyalty of the Lord in the world around you, are you more concerned whether or not the Lord is on your side or their side, or are you more concerned with being on his side? I think this is important when we think about the nature of our society right now, when you consider, again, all the political upheaval and the socio social strife and struggles that's existing in our, in our culture, it's very easy for four years ago for those on the right side of things, the, the Republican side of things, to view, okay, God's for us now. He, he's on our side because this guy got elected. And then a few weeks ago, it, pendulums seemed to swing in the opposite direction. And there are some on that side. God's actually on our side because our, God, our guy got elected. But we need to think about that response because God takes no sides. As you pray and as you process the, the political happenings in our society and the political happenings of our culture, be very careful that you are not attributing the Lord's loyalty to a particular political party. The rise and fall of a political party, the rise and fall of a certain policy, the rise and fall of certain laws being passed and policies being enacted, the rise and fall of those dynamics may be as much attributed to judgment as it is salvation, to discipline as it is deliverance. 
What you and I must be more concerned about than trying to figure out whose side is the Lord on when it comes to political dealings in our society is whether or not you and I are going to settle on his side. And I suspect that if we settle on the Lord's side, we will not be able to square up with either the Republicans or the Democrats. I believe that's going to draw us into a middle ground where we see that the laws of the land do not necessarily equate with the law of God. And laws may be passed in this land that the Lord, that just because a certain law is passed in this land that is not a sign of the Lord's favor or the Lord's desires for his people, that passing may be as much the result of discipline and judgment as it is deliverance and salvation. So when you consider the supremacy of God and you consider the severity of God, be humble and remember that God takes no sides. And consider whether or not you will be on his side when all is said and done. That's what the commander of the Lord's army insisted Joshua do in that moment. And this is what this passage, I believe, insists that we do in this moment, that he's on his own side. But the Philistine people want to get rid of the ark. They decide, they come up with a plan on how to do that. They, they want things to settle down. They want the tumors to go away. They want death to stop happening. And so they, they come up with a plan to um, get rid of the ark, and this is what they decide to do. They put the ark on a cart, and they hitch it to two cows. And they send, this, they send the ark away, being pulled and led by a couple of cows. And look at verse 9 of chapter 6. It says, after they kind of hooked it up, it says, then they watch. Then they watch. And if the cart goes up the road to its homeland toward Beth Shemesh, it is the Lord who has made this terrible trouble for us. However, if it doesn't, we will know that it was not his hand that punished us. It was just something that happened to us by chance. But the dynamic behind that, or to think, to even raise that question, shows a shortcoming in their understanding of the power of the Lord, because not only does God take no sides, God takes no chances when, when his glory is at stake. He takes no chances when his presence and his purposes are on the table. The Lord is attentive to his glory. He is attentive to his plans. He is attentive to his purposes. He doesn't take risks. He doesn't take chances. Now, this is a reality that should unsettles some of you who may be entertaining thoughts of a view of God that's referred to as open theism. Open theism is a movement, it's a theological movement that actually gains some traction in certain Christian circles in our society, but, but it's a movement that argues the Lord doesn't know the future, that he knows the past perfectly, he knows the present perfectly, but he only knows the future in, in regards to uh, infinite number of possibilities. But he doesn't necessarily know the outcome of decisions or the outcome of choices, just possibilities. And so open theists would argue that God's love takes the form of risk, that God's love can sometimes come across as reckless. But if we're hearing this passage and we're considering the supremacy of God and the severity of God and how these cows are going to make it back to Beth Shemesh, we're going to know that the Lord takes no chances. And any thought that the Lord doesn't know what's going to happen in the future and that he isn't determining outcomes, that is 
Well, it's, it's a heretical thought. It's a heretical movement. So we want to reject any idea or any suggestion that the Lord takes risks or that the Lord acts in ways that are actually reckless in the world around us. Understand that when Jesus went to the cross, that wasn't reckless. That wasn't reckless love. When Jesus went to the cross, that was a measured, calculated giving of himself for the sake of love. That the Lord knew what he was doing when he sent Jesus to the cross. He wasn't taking a risk. And Jesus knew fully well what he would endure as he suffered and died on the cross. And Jesus knew what the outcome of that moment would be. He knew resurrection was coming. It was for the joy that was set before him that caused him to endure the cross. He wasn't guessing. He wasn't taking a risk. He wasn't acting in a reckless fashion. No, it was redeeming love that is fully focused, fully focused on the glory of the Lord in the world. God takes no chances. And so they send the ark to the territory of of Beth Shemesh. This was an important move. It's a good move because Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city. This was the city set aside for um, a clan, a tribe, a family of Israel known as, as Kohath. And this group was charged with caring for the ark. And it was also the home for, of Aaron's descendants. Aaron was kind of the first high priest, and he would kickstart that movement in the life of pe- the people of Israel. So the ark of the covenant is making its way back to the place it needs to be because this was the people and this was the place that it was to be cared for according to God's law. Earlier in Numbers chapter 4, there's this description. Numbers chapter 4 kind of cues us in this direction. It says, The service of the Kohathites at the tent of meeting concerns the most holy objects. Whenever the camp is about to move on, Aaron and his sons are to go in, take down the screening curtain, and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So they're being instructed on how to handle, how to care for the ark of God. And then it says, do this for them so that they may live and not die when they come near the most holy objects. In other words, this, this instruction was designed to keep them alive. This word was designed to protect them as they served the Lord. Aaron and his sons are to go in and assign each man his task and transportation duty. The Kohathites are not to go in and look at the holy objects as they are covered or they will die. But upon receiving the ark back, when these two cows kind of brought this cart in and they saw the ark of the covenant again, they don't respond in a way that that respects the sacredness of God. They receive the ark in this moment in a way that disregards the sacredness of God. And they act and react in this moment to an uncommon God in a, in a common way. Notice verse 13. The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they were overjoyed to see it. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there near a large rock. The people of the city chopped up the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites removed the Ark of the Lord along with the box containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. And that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. It seems like they're responding well. I mean, they're offering things to the Lord and and they're tearing, destroying this cart. They're, They're responding, but there are some details recorded here that show that they are responding to this uncommon object in a common way. 
First, you see it when they offer up as a burnt offering these two cows. God's word was very clear that cows aren't to be used for burnt offerings. Only bulls were, only male bulls were to be offered up in that way, not milk cows, not female cows. And the word was also very clear that that the Ark of the Covenant was not to be looked upon. It was to be covered up. And, and God's holiness, God's, the sacredness of that object wasn't to be viewed in a common way or treated in a common way, yet they take the Ark and they put it on a rock visible to everyone. They take no precautions. They do not listen to what God had said earlier in the book of Numbers. And so they're responding to, they're, they're disregarding the sacredness of God. And then notice what goes down in verse 19. And this is one of those moments where you check whether or not you have a visceral reaction because of what God does or because of what people are doing. Notice what goes down in verse 19. It says, God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. They actually opened it up and looked inside, disregarding the sacredness of God by doing so. And so God struck them down. It says that he struck down 70 persons. There, is, there are manuscripts of this passage that suggest a lot more than that was struck down in this moment. But whether it's 70 or 70,000, does it really matter? The Lord is striking people down. This is severity. This is judgment because they are disregarding his sacredness. And it says the people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should the ark go from here? And, and the narrative, and in fact, everything ranging from chapter four all the way to now has been building to this one question. As this is the most important question a human being can ever ask. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And we've seen one after another examples of who can't. Eli couldn't stand in the presence of this holy God. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, couldn't stand in the presence of this holy God. That tells us that positions of power in the world, even positions of power amongst God's people, do not guarantee that someone can stand in the presence of this holy God. We've seen Dagon fall. And we've seen those devoted to Dagon fall, which tells us that apparently we cannot rely upon those things we accomplish in this life as enabling us to stand before this holy God. Our apparent accomplishments cannot be drawn upon to answer this question as Dagon fell, the Philistines fell. We find Levites of Beth Shemesh falling too. And we begin to discover in that moment that pedigree doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what family you were a part of or what family you were born into or what family you weren't born into. When it comes to you standing before this holy God, power, accomplishments, pedigree, none of that qualifies you. None of it qualifies you to do so because God is not holy or God is not common. God is not common. He is holy. He's not to be approached in the common way. He's not to be approached in a trivial way. He is not common. He is holy. Now, when the Lord judges in, this, in these chapters and people start falling dead, understand that the Lord doesn't delight in that necessarily. 
Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, tell them, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn away from his way and live. The Lord wasn't slaughtering people in this passage with a smile on his face. What brings him pleasure isn't the death of the wicked. What brings him pleasure is the, repentant of the, is the repentance of the wicked. Those who recognize God is sacred, God is not common. He can't be approached in any way we prefer or desire or dream up of. A.W. Tozer put it this way when he describes the holiness of God and why it matters. He says, God is holy, and holiness is the moral condition necessary for the health of this universe. Whatever is holy is healthy. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hated the polio that would take the life of the child. Anytime that which is uncommon or sacred is treated in a common or sacrilegious way, that solicits God's wrath. And do you realize that includes how you and I relate to one another? Being created in the image of God means that we were created sacred. And when we do not respect the Imago Dei in one another, we are treating that which should be approached in an un, that which is uncommon, we are treating in a very common way. This means we don't take our relational cues from our society. We live in a society today where people cut and run the moment things get tough in a relationship. We live in a society today where we are actually encouraged to get away from those who may be considered negative or those who may be considered toxic by whatever definition that may be. And, and so we cut and run and we are approaching uncommon realities in a common way. We are taking our relational cues from the society around us and that is that is sacrilege. It's sacrilege. And this is what, this is the key problem in this text. The people of Israel are approaching an uncommon God in a common way. But as we say and declare that God is uncommon, that doesn't mean that God is not unapproachable. It doesn't mean that you can't approach God and you can't stand before this holy God it just means you have to stand before him his way. There are countless examples of this in the scriptures. You have Moses who met this holy God at the burning bush. And as he was drawing close to the Lord, the Lord wanted him there. The Lord wanted Moses with him. But he told Moses, look, the ground that you are standing on is holy. Take off your sandals. I want you to be here. I want you to stand here. I want you to be with me. But you have to understand the sacredness of my presence, the holiness of my character. So take that which is common, your sandals, remove them from your feet because you are standing on holy ground. In other words, I want you to come to me, but you're going to come to me my way. He said the same thing to Joshua at the end of Joshua chapter 5 where the commander of the Lord's army told Joshua, remove the sandals, take away that which is common, get it off your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did just that. God said similar things to the people of Israel when he delivered them from Egypt, and he gave them the instructions about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and his law and how all of that was to be handled. He gave them incredible detail, 
detailed instructions so that he could be with them and they could be with him in an unhindered, holy capacity. And as long as the people of Israel listened and did what he said, they enjoyed his presence. But when they refused to listen to his way and didn't do what he said, things got bad. You move towards the Gospels and you hear the same rhythm, the same principle being declared in Jesus' life. There came a moment when Jesus' glory was revealed to Peter, James, and John at what's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And his heavenly father spoke in a way that Peter, James, and John could hear. And this is what he said. This is my beloved son. Do what he says. Listen to him. He is my way. And Jesus would affirm this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the father except through me. You can't come to the Father on the basis of your performance. You can't come to the Father on the basis of your pedigree. You can't come to the Father on the basis of whatever power you have in this life or in this world. You must only come to the Father His way, and His way is named Jesus, which is why Jesus lived the life that He lived, and He died the death that He died, and He rose from the grave so that you and I could step into the presence of God and be with the Lord forever and always in a way that's enjoyable in a way that is life-giving, in a way that will cause our souls to thrive and our lives to become luscious gardens and not withered leaves. You get into Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, there's a moment where the writer tells us that because of what Jesus has done for us, we can enter the presence of God boldly. We can stand before the presence of this God because of Jesus. So as you can As you consider the question of this text, who can stand before this this God, this holy Lord? Well, by faith in Jesus, you can. By faith in Jesus, you can stand before this, this holy, uncommon, sacred God. And as you do so, you find life. As you do so, you find heaven. Because heaven is where God is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider these truths? And would you open our eyes to your bigness? Would you open our eyes to your supremacy? Would you sober us up with, your, with the severity of your judgment in passages like this? And God, would you give us grace to consider you sacred and holy so that we would come to you in the ways that you call us to, that we would come to you in the way that you prescribe. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the way. Thank you for sending Jesus to live the life that that sinners like me could never live. Thank you for sending Jesus to die the death that sinners like me deserve to die. God, thank you for sending Jesus to rise from the grave so that sinners like me may be saved and brought into your presence so that we can know you, so that we can boldly approach you, so that we can be with you now and forever. God, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. God, we pray this in his name.